just how many recipients of the MacArthur Genius Grant does it take to bring a new interpretation of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth to life on the Met stage? Find out this and more about the new production of Eurydice on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. With music by Genius Grant recipient Matthew O'Coin, libretto by recipient Sarah Rule, and stage direction by recipient Mary Zimmerman, Eurydice is a new examination of the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice from Eurydice's point of view. This co-commission and co-production arrives at the Met after a successful premiere at LA Opera in February of 2020. On today's episode, Professor W. Anthony Shepard takes us into the underworld and explores our protagonist's tale. Thank you very much. I was just saying beforehand how excited I am to be back. It's been just over two years, about two years and a week since I stood here. Um, but I'm also very excited because tonight will be the first time that I've seen Matthew O'Coin's Eurydice live. I'm also very fortunate to be a near neighbor of Matt's in southern Vermont. And I've enjoyed discussing Eurydice and contemporary opera more generally with him over the past several years. Matthew O'Coin is a composer who has been fully immersed in the ocean of opera. In one of our conversations, he mentioned to me that he had drifted away from classical music in high school, but then he heard Verdi's Otello in his senior year and realized he just couldn't resist opera. He began composing operas while in college at Harvard. He composed an operatic scene based on James Merrill's poem, Sandover, in 2010, and then a full opera on the life of Hart Crane in 2012. But he arrived as a professional opera composer with his Walt Whitman work, Crossing, and his delightful chamber opera for the young, titled Second Nature, both of those works from 2015. O'Coin has also waded deeply into opera as a conductor, serving as an assistant conductor for several productions here at the Met and conducting at the LA Opera, the Santa Fe Opera, and elsewhere. He has even written a book on opera entitled The Impossible Art, which is coming out one week from today. And of course, with Eurydice at the Met, there's no looking back. In college, a coin focused particularly on poetry, and it shows in his libretti for his other operas and his vocal works and his careful treatment, musical treatment, of Sarah Rule's text for Eurydice. As he relates, engaging with text through musical composition at the piano becomes a physical thing for him and results in what he feels is, quote, a dynamic, unpredictable, speech-like quality to his vocal rhythms. However, in this opera, there are also numerous sections of soaring lyricism in which syllables are cherished by being held with very long notes. I feel Eurydice best exemplifies the full range of a coin's musical style, 
which exhibits traits of both post-minimalism and neo-romanticism, along with traces of his student days in an indie rock band. Though his approach to harmony owes a good deal to the British composer Thomas Addis, O'Coin's music feels rather American in its, quote, sense of groove. Let's consider a couple specific examples from Eurydice that illustrate his roots in both American minimalism and in 19th and early 20th century operatic traditions. I hear several specific passages in this opera that recall the operas of John Adams. For example, the sections of dramatic intensification in Adams's Nixon in China, particularly in that opera's opening scene as we all await Nixon's arrival, those sections may have directly inspired passages in Act One, Scene One of Eurydice. I also hear echoes of the powerful orchestral interjections in Adams's Addison's aria, Batter My Heart, from Dr. Atomic, which is an opera that Aquinas conducted with great success. The plot of Eurydice required Aquinas to compose multiple orchestral transitions as the setting moves from our world down to the underworld. The story also calls for multiple musical depictions of water specifically of the river of forgetfulness and the ultimate transition to the state of death that full immersion in its waters brings. In these passages, parallel moments of orchestral transition from Wagner's ring cycle come to mind as do Wagner's depictions of the river Rhine and also Claude Debussy's depictions of water in its several states. For example, when we first meet Eurydice's deceased father in the underworld, we not only hear low brass, which um, we expect, it's a sonic sign of Hades that goes back from opera's birth in Monteverdi, but in addition to hearing low brass, we hear clear echoes from Rheingold. The first vocal entrance of the three stones, okay, who are the three stones? We'll get there, but they are Hades' rather comic and ineffectual guardians. When they have their first vocal entrance, they emerge from a similar flowing Wagnerian passage in a way directly recalling the entrance, the first entrance of the Rhine Maidens in Wagner's opera. And finally, Wagner's river music uh, seems to form a bedrock for a coin's river music later in Act Three. Most striking to me, literally striking, are the transitions we hear as we move down to the underworld at several points. This percussion music, there's a lot of percussion in the pit tonight at the Met, this music directly recalls the work music of the Nibelungen as Wotan and Loga descend to the infernal realm in Das Rheingold. For the record, a coin told me that he had recognized the Rhine illusion in his score after the fact, but that the Nibelheim transition illusion was entirely intentional and he doesn't quite buy it, but you can listen for yourself. Of course, as a musicologist with ears ever directed backwards through history, I hear other moments in this opera that seem to attest to a coin's deep knowledge of the operatic canon. For instance, I have no ex interpretive explanation for this, but the magical cyclical melodic gesture, the bell-like melody, that we hear near the end of Richard Strauss's Der Rosenkavalier is invoked for me in a coin's act two, scene one. 
More easily interpreted is the hint of the rough and ready dance music from Berg's Votzak in the scene after Berg commit, uh, Berg, no, Votzak commits the murder, and then he goes to a tavern and he's doing this very rough slam dance music. That music, um, crossed with some 1980s electronic dance music, is, is um, similar to what we hear in Act One, Scene Four at Eurydice and Orfe Orpheus's par uh, wedding party. Here, the somewhat ominous dance music seems to foreshadow Eurydice's impending first demise, which will soon follow their wedding party. Now, none of these particular allusions or resemblances to opera history involve any traces of irony, the ones I just mentioned. Unlike much contemporary opera, these moments do not sound as though a composer from outside of the operatic tradition is sampling that tradition. Rather, these illusions reveal, or resemblances, reveal a coin's full absorption of opera history. We will find a bit later on that ironic illusions run rampant in a coin's musical characterization of Hades himself. This opera both is and is not a retelling of the Orpheus myth of old. Yes, in this opera, Orpheus is a demigod and supreme musician who journeys to the underworld to recover his newlywed wife, Eurydice, who died accidentally during the wedding festivities. We know that story. He wins the right to return with her to life, but loses her again and forever when he turns to look upon her as they ascend. This opera, which is based directly on Sarah Rule's 2003 play of the same title, is far more focused on Eurydice and on her relationship with her deceased father. This plot focus reflects Rule's own life experience. She lost her father to cancer when she was only 20, an event which she has explained motivated the entire play. A coin avoids any overt references to the multiple previous Orpheus operas from operatic history, though I will note a couple distinct echoes of both Monteverdi and Gluck a little bit later. Instead, this opera is directly connected to earlier Orpheus-inspired compositions of his own. Most significantly, a coin setting his own poetic text explored a rather dark reading of the Orpheus legend in his 2014 piece for countertenor, solo violin, and chamber orchestra entitled The Orphic Moment. And that piece, The Orphic Moment, um, just came out a week ago on a CD with Anthony Roth Costanzo singing, uh, performing the countertenor part. In that powerful work, The Orphic Moment, a coin imagined the moment at which Orpheus turns back to look upon Eurydice, losing her forever. Orpheus realizes in that work that losing Eurydice inspires his musical art. And in a quite creepy passage, he clearly chooses art over love. As a coin put it in an Opera News interview back in 2016, quote, there's this weird sense that her death is just an excuse to make music, that he would sacrifice even his relationship to it. In his forthcoming book on opera, Matt dives deeply into the classical figure of Orpheus and finds that, quote, Orpheus seems more at home singing elegies for Eurydice than he is actually living with her. You can't help but wonder if there is something calculated in that backward glance. He concludes, quote, Orpheus, being the ultimate narcissistic ascete, turns around, 
not because of a momentary impulse, but because he knows loss is the best possible nourishment for music. In the opera, it is clear at several moments that Orpheus does think more about his music than he does about his relationship with Eurydice. His very first word in the opera is music. Extreme devotion to musical composition is framed as a problem in both the Orphic moment and in Eurydice. Indeed, Hades taunts Orpheus in Act Three of the opera by asking him whether he's sure he wouldn't rather, quote, choose the music over Eurydice. It might surprise us to encounter an opera in which a composer's, composer character's music making is shown to distract him from engaging with life and others. Music making is a negative activity. And yet it is clear that this plot element had the most personal resonance for Yokoin at a moment when he was reconsidering his own work-life balance. Some music from the Orphic moment appears in the score for tonight's opera. However, encountering Rule's play, Eurydice, and collaborating directly with her led Okoin to create an opera that dramatically shifts the legend's entire focus away from the heroic composer. In the Orphic moment, Eurydice was represented only by the nonverbal solo violin. In the opera, as we will see, Eurydice has both the first and final words, and between the several main characters, our focus is most fully centered on her throughout. Before we consider each of the main characters in turn, I'd like to ponder a paradox. Opera typically sends emotions over the top. It places human characters in extreme dramatic situations that I hope most of us will never experience in our quotidian lives. Opera supersizes aspects of our lives and interactions. In short, opera tends to make everything, well, operatic. However, by doing so, opera has repeatedly succeeded in staging intimate aspects of the human experience in the most poignant ways possible. For well over four centuries, the operas with the most powerful impact have, through words, music, and staging, brought us face to face with our own humanity. By going big, opera repeatedly succeeds in making us feel our individual human condition. A coin and rules Eurydice issues grand aesthetic or political manifestos. This opera does not seem self-consciously aimed at wowing us with technique or complexity or stylistic extremity. It's not deliberately attempting to redefine the genre. Instead, this opera offers us a profound emotional experience. Let's start with Hades. At one extreme end of this continuum of humanity, we find Hades and his three stones. A coin's musical setting makes clear that these characters are not human, and he clearly had a heck of a time, fun time, writing their parts. Hades, performed by Barry Banks, is cast as a freakishly high, campy tenor who sings in stilted rhythms and who most clearly represents the over-emphatic vocal lines of a certain strain of avant-garde opera that we can trace back to Ligeti. This character also inspired a coin to compose multiple comic stylistic allusions. Hades seems always to make the grand overblown entrance, 
and in this sense is the most operatic of the characters in the pejorative sense of the term. At his first appearance in Act 1, Scene 5, the orchestra answers his overloud hello with a gesture from the entrance of Mephistopheles in Berlioz's Damnation of Faust. Hades is more typically associated in this opera with the Baroque period and with swarmy elevator-style pop music. And swarmy is the technical term that appears in a coin's score. As he attempts to seduce Eurydice in his penthouse apartment in scene six, he turns on a radio, only to have the orchestra from the pit blare a measure or two from Vivaldi's Four Seasons. He then quickly spins the dial, landing the orchestra in the realm of bachelor pad bossa nova. Hades again makes a big entrance in Act 3, Scene 3, to music that channels Handel's coronation anthem style, though with kazoos, before the orchestra slips right back to bossa nova. Other moments of musical illusion involving Hades feel far more sinister and significant, moving beyond sonic slapstick, the examples I just mentioned. As Hades attempts to seduce Eurydice, Back in the opera's sixth scene, he draws on Monteverdi's Orfeo to mock Orpheus and stir up Eurydice's insecurities and suspicions. Hades claims that, quote, Orpheus only thinks of song. I, I'd think of you all day long. Hades sings the word Orpheus in a high Monteverdian style to the accompaniment of open, archaic-sounding fifths. He sings melismatically, multiple pitches for individual syllables, and he even receives a strumming string accompaniment as though the orchestra colludes with him, assuming the role of Orpheus's lyre. Hades' music is marked in the score with the words hypnotic trance-like, with its cascading chromatic lines, and Eurydice soon complains that she feels dizzy. This devilish character is delivering a performance, misusing music's power against the vulnerable young woman. The music of the three stones, that is, little stone, big stone, and loud stone, resembles that of Hades as they sound rather ridiculous with their overly emphatic, rigid rhythms, especially in the outbursts of loud stone, which the others hear as embarrassingly loud and assertive. The stones remind me of Gluck's Furies in the passages of rigid rhythm intended to defend the entrance to the underworld. Late in the opera, they attempt to distract Eurydice, telling her to embrace her death by, quote, keeping busy, as they dive into a faux madrigalesque style reminiscent of the patter of Gilbert and Sullivan. Orpheus. The character of Orpheus is clearly far along the humanity continuum from Hades, but he is torn between his divine artistic nature and his mere mortal side. This duality is realized in the opera through double casting. As a coin explained to me, when Orpheus is, quote, being a normal dude, he's just a baritone, performed by Joshua Hopkins. When his supernatural side is expressed, Orpheus gets a countertenor double. This vocal division suggests he is, quote, hiding something from Eurydice, 
given that she never sees or hears the double, but senses his presence. I should note that the countertenor voice is probably the sound that most clearly marks contemporary opera of the past several decades across all styles. As is true of most contemporary opera casting of this voice, the countertenor here represents something ineffable and somewhat negative. As a coin puts it in his book, whenever Orpheus goes into one of his musical trances, creating distance between himself and his mortal beloved, the baritone voice is, quote, bathed in a halo of countertenor sound. That combined baritone countertenor voice of Orpheus is also a representation of vocal musical performance itself within the opera. And it is a representation sharply tinged with dissonance. For example, as I mentioned, Orpheus's very first word in the opera is music in response to Eurydice's question, what are you thinking about? At this moment, Orpheus and his double clash with a major second and are accompanied with a very dissonant chord. So his very first word is music on that dissonant um, uh, interval. And then Eurydice responds, how can you, and on the words can you, she sings, don't you remember all those years ago we talked about the tritone, the devil's interval, so a very dissonant interval. How can you think about very jagged, very dissonant vocal melody that ends with music, a very sweet fifth. So he sang music with a dissonance. She answered him teasingly with these nasty intervals and jagged melody, but she's attracted to his music. And she ends with music, the beautiful fifth interval. This moment in the score is also marked pianissimo when they enter with the word music and lontano or distant. So you're supposed to sing it as though you're distant. And as he, Orpheus is, he's distant from Eurydice, even though they're hanging out on the beach together, they're supposed to be in love, but what he's thinking about is not her. Um, from the start, this opera frames musicals' power as suspect, as somewhat negative. Later in Act Two, Scene Two, Orpheus writes a letter to his deceased wife. He complains of his loneliness and of how now he can only play the saddest music. Here, Orpheus and his double sing the most dissonant intervals um, possible. And they do so here um, first on her very name. So, dear your Eurydice. That's some serious dissonance, right? So he must not like her at all. That's what opera history has told us. But let's go a little further because I think there's another explanation. Uh, they then sing, they being baritone and countertenor Orpheus, sing this. I play the saddest music now you're, I mean, they're, they're moving, jumping over each other. My two fingers were jumping over each other clashing seconds, seconds, minor seconds, uh, major seconds. Um, something a bit overdone.
of this sad letter to Eurydice. I suspect a coin is not simply word painting Orpheus' dejected emotion. I don't think a coin meant to say Orpheus hates Eurydice, and that's why he's singing this horrible uh, you know, dissonance here. Instead, a coin is showing us by deliberately overdoing it musically, suggesting through excessively harsh harmony that there is something childish and performative in this letter written, uh, letter writing Orpheus is doing, expressing his grief. He's performing his grief, and he's doing it the way a musician would with a lot of nasty dissonance, right? It's overblown. Throughout most of the opera, when Orpheus is joined by his double, they sing in perfect fifths and fourth intervals, not dissonant, creating an archaic style through these intervals and through the sound of the countertenor voice itself. This is true, as Orpheus sings in scene one, of how he will take his beloved's hair and turn it into string instruments, literally using her to create his music. As he climaxes with the promise that he will fly her, quote, into the sky, the Orpheus voices strike a loud, grandiose, perfect fourth, which, in its triumph, again feels performative and false, overblown, undercutting what was supposed to have been an intimate expression of love, not a grand operatic moment. In Act 3, Scene 1, Orpheus finds that he must perform in the underworld to win back his wife. In a rather comic gesture, Orpheus sings a passage in Latin from Boethius, which is not in the original play by Sarah Rule. A coin felt that Orpheus needed something to sing at this moment in the opera, and he and Sarah had the mutual idea that it needed to, quote, feel like a spell, and it needed to be in a, quote, language of ritual. So Rule turned to her old classics professor to suggest a suitable Latin text. And they got Boethius. A coin created similarly archaic, ritualistic sounding music here for the doubled voice Orpheus. As we're going to hear in a moment, they again sing in parallel fourths and fifths. Actually, they start out at the 11th, given their octave separation, and in a highly melismatic style, so hearkening back even to Monteverdi style. A coin also doubled the clarinet and piccolo with an 11th interval and thereby created an ancient organ sound. Curiously, in the next scene, Eurydice exclaims to her father, quote, I hear him at the gates. And at that very moment, the orchestra in the pit replays the sound and melodic gesture from Orpheus's Latin performance. It's as though time has slipped back a moment in the opera. At the end of their double-voiced Latin Boethius performance, the baritone Orpheus breaks away. As the score states, quote, no longer able to contain himself, Orpheus speaks in his own language. This shift to a more heartfelt, direct expression without the counter-tender voice joining him and starting off melodically on a pure middle C signals Orpheus's more human sincerity and is what succeeds, actually, in opening the gates of hell. Let's listen to those two moments in this excerpt from the Met's production. Sweet, 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 sweet. 
Now we skip ahead. Orpheus breaks away from that performance, speaks sincerely. style of Eurydice's father, sung by the bass baritone Nathan Berg, is placed further towards sincerity and human expression. Now, trigger warning. If you happen to be a father of a daughter in her late teens, as I am I, there are moments in this opera that are almost too poignant. Sarah Rule dedicated her play to the memory of her own father who died, as I said, when she was 20. In her play and in this opera, the father-daughter relationship is just as crucial as that between the newlywed couple. As a coin notes, there are really two love triangles in this opera, Eurydice, Orpheus, and her father, and the second one, Eurydice, Orpheus, and his music. In the opera's second scene, the father, who is in the underworld, writes a letter to Eurydice on her wedding day. All fathers know the touchingly ridiculous position, the somewhat helpless feeling of attempting to offer advice to a young adult child. You know you are being pedantic and paternalistic, but you also feel that giving advice, attempting to protect your child from the world you have done since her birth, is what you are hardwired to do. This father's advice is delivered in the form of a list that includes everything from, quote, take care to change the light bulb, to continue to give yourself to others, concluding that, quote, love is the ultimate satisfaction in life. Over and over, he offers clear descending B major scales as he attempts to reach and teach his child from beyond the grave. When Eurydice later joins him in the underworld, he patiently attempts to revive her memory that she's lost and to reteach her language. He is ultimately able to relinquish her once again as she returns to her life with Orpheus. Left alone once more, he decides to immerse himself in the riverfulness for good. This ultimate death aria, the father's most personal and direct expression in the opera, is spoken. Throughout opera history, some of the most powerfully dramatic moments are those that are spoken rather than sung. And that proves true here as well. Finally, let's turn to Eurydice, portrayed in the opera by Aaron Morley. Akoin has explained that at its heart, he doesn't think this opera is the Orpheus story. As I've noted, it surely is no 
celebration of the magical powers of a supreme composer musician. Indeed, Orpheus is silent at the opera's opening, pantomiming his answers to Eurydice's young love inquiries as they are on the beach. Orpheus is again mute at the opera's ending as he arrives for a second time in the underworld and is bathed this time in the memory-erasing waters of death. In every way, this is truly Eurydice's opera. And over the course of the work, she matures from a somewhat giddy girl in love to a woman who has embraced the fullness of the human experience even unto death. Eurydice is not without her personality flaws. As a coin notes, Rule, Sarah Rule, seeing a bit of herself in this character is rather hard on her at certain points in the opera. Eurydice has several big aria-like sections in the opera. The most significant, what a coin has referred to as, quote, the fulcrum of the entire work, occurs in Act Two, Scene Four. In the aria, Orpheus never liked words. This is what it is to love an artist. As she sings, Eurydice becomes quite melismatic, seeming to imitate older musical depictions of Orpheus's singing just as Hades did earlier in the opera, but without irony. Because remember, part of the reason she loves him is because of his music. A steady bass pulse underlines the seriousness of this aria that she sings, and a strumming harp, representing Orpheus's lyre, further suggests that she has taken on his voice here. Let's um, listen to an excerpt from that, um, that big aria.
Eurydice also has the final big number in the entire opera late in Act Three, as she writes a letter to Orpheus's future wife. Did I mention there are lots of letters written and letter arias in this opera? This is her death aria, fulfilling the traditional operatic function of having the soprano sing big before dying on stage. And yet, the sentiments and images are very personal, intimate, touchingly mundane, fully human. Eurydice has matured profoundly throughout the course of the opera. She ends her opera with the most profound decision of all, to accept her own death. The original final lines for Eurydice in the play had her signing off her letter by repeating lines that Orpheus delivered when he wrote his letter to her. Quote, I'll give this letter to a worm. I hope he finds you. In the opera libretto, these lines were replaced with, this is what it is. It's what it is to love, love Eurydice. A coin's careful musical setting of these final lines enables us to hear two meanings. His placement of pregnant rests, the continuation of his descending melodic line, a falling forth on her name, the repetition of the words is and love, and the extension of specific syllables with held notes, all suggest that Eurydice has discovered what it is to love herself. So here, this, this is what it is, is what it is to love, love Eurydice. The way he sets it, I think, allows us to hear that other meaning. Through the course of this opera, we too have learned to love her. In addition to altering these final lines, Rule and a coin cut several sections of the spoken play that they feel just wouldn't work in an opera. There are also a few additions, such as the wedding vows between Eurydice and Orpheus, taken from actual vows that Sarah had written for a friend who passed away from cancer soon after he got married. I should note that the wedding vows in near the opening of the opera is the one passage in which Eurydice occasionally sings alone with the countertenor, perhaps to emphasize the performative nature of that moment of performing their vows in the ceremony. Coyne explained to me that in composing the opera, he would typically memorize sections of the text and then would put the printed libretto away as he composed. Now, this would inevitably result in small changes to the text. And he would then go and ask Sarah for permission to go with those changes in the score. A coin learned to trust her to make decisions at the level of dramatic structure. And Sarah Poole came to trust him with the small detailed changes he felt were necessary for the vocal lines to work. One sequence in the plot gave them some particular trouble. In act two of the play, Eurydice, now in the underworld with her father, is slowly returning to herself and to her memories and to language. And this section alternates repeatedly in the play 
with short scenes set with Orpheus lamenting back in the world. Alternation may be opera feels fragmentary at this point, and so to convey the passage of time and to avoid all that cross-cutting between Orpheus above and them below, Akoin decided to layer these short scenes, creating a dreamlike sense of time passing, a simultaneity of these two different spaces. Rule wasn't sure it would be comprehensible, but this simultaneous presentation of different scenes and of different characters' perspectives through music is something that opera is able to achieve quite successfully. Rule's play includes numerous stage directions that call for specific sounds and even specific musical styles. And this posed a challenge for a coin. He basically ignored many of the references to specific old songs such as I Got Rhythm and Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree that the play says are supposed to be uh, there present in the performance. And he occasionally selected alternative stylistic references. For example, Rule's play calls for heavy metal music to represent the underworld, but a coin turned to blatant Baroque styles instead. He did follow the stage direction calling for Brazilian mood music with his version of Bossa Nova in several spots. At numerous moments in the opera, a coin was inspired by the oral stage directions in the play. For example, for Eurydice's fall to her death, the play refers to, quote, strange sounds, xylophones, brass bands, sounds of falling, sounds of vertigo, sounds of breathing. Directions of this kind encouraged the coin to expand the role of the percussion section in the opera. The play also refers to a sound to signal the loss of memory in passing to the underworld. And a coin scored this for glockenspiel, string harmonics, piano, harp, and vibraphone to create that special magical sound. Opera starts with the ping of octave B flats as a representation of wedding bells. Rules play foregrounds the love-hate relationship that exists between words and music, one of opera's favorite topics over the past 400 years. Perhaps surprisingly, the opera cuts back a bit on the play's emphasis on this subject. However, the symbolic tension between words and music is still present in the relationship between Eurydice and Orpheus. As I've mentioned, Orpheus's devotion received some negative commentary through a coin's musical setting. Words and language are highlighted topics in the libretto. Letter writing, it's central to the plot. Again, Father, Orpheus, Eurydice, they all write letters to each other. A coin tends to go to a more melismatic setting in these passages, which allows for the pace of actual letter writing. And the orchestral texture thins out in Act 2, Scene 3, the father reads Orpheus's letter that he sent to Eurydice in the underworld, and the father reads it to Eurydice, but he doesn't repeat all of Orpheus's lines or melodies exactly. The melodic shape and rhythms are similar, but it is as though the father is somewhat reinterpreting Orpheus's letter as he reads it aloud to his daughter. In addition to sending that letter down to Eurydice to the underworld, Orpheus sends her a copy of Shakespeare's King Lear, since she loves to read and how she cherishes words. The father reads a particularly meaningful passage of Shakespeare's play to his daughter. Lear's speech to his faithful daughter Cordelia right before both led to prison in Act 5, Scene 3 of Shakespeare's play. 
and Rule's opera has powerfully staked Eurydice's claim to the classic Orpheus bit. We are now compelled to consider the story through her experience. The operatic Eurydice seems to be aware of this herself. At the start of the opera, as the lovers play on the beach, she tells Orpheus, don't look at me, and she runs and leaps into his arms. The music suddenly turns darker at this moment, as though the orchestra has had a premonition, and as though Eurydice is testing out something about their relationship which she suspects is true. Indeed, Orpheus fails to catch her, and they tumble on top of each other in the sand. In Act 3, Scene 3, Eurydice declares, I decided to come back upon her return to the underworld, and in her final letter apologizes for having deliberately called out Orpheus's name. The agency here is all hers. In our lives, we have all likely made decisions that seem clearly at odds with our own best interests, and yet, for reasons that remain mysterious, we make them nonetheless, as though compelled to assert our free will, however illusory that freedom might actually be. In this opera, Eurydice seals her own fate rather than returning to life with Orpheus, as though she is responding to deeper truths. Through Eurydice, the opera invites us to embrace fully our experience of loss, to mourn directly rather than through artistic deflection, and to accept our mortality. As Matt has said, the ending of this opera is pretty bleak. The father and Eurydice have been immersed in the river, and Orpheus, having either died a natural death or perhaps following his murder by the Minads, arrives in Hades and also passes through the waters of Amnesia. Thus, we witness three deaths in the final act, and the Orpheus tale seems to have ended once and for all. We again hear the music of forgetfulness, of emptiness, and, quote, everything gets washed away as the opera invites us to mourn at the end. Bleak though the plot may be, Eurydice's ending points to another paradox of opera. The deeper opera delves into the dark and tragic aspects of life, demanding our tears through devastating displays of emotion, forcing us to look back upon our loss the more light it provides each of us as we journey back upwards to living a fully human life. Thank you very much. That was Professor W. Anthony Shepard guiding us through the themes and musical highlights of Eurydice. This new production can be seen in cinemas through the upcoming Live in HD broadcast on December 4th, 2021. For more information, visit metopera.org and be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera Guild on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and thank you for listening.